deliver. Today we're going to be in a two-part series, sermon, I don't know, two parts. Um, I'll talk this morning a bit you know, about fathers, about the prodigal son, and then tonight we're going to speak about the other son that nobody ever talks about. find it. Um, just keep your finger there. We'll get to it later. Uh, let's just pray one more time together before we, before we get into it. Jesus, God, I thank you for your love, God, and your grace and your mercy that you've given us and you've shown us as, a, as our Heavenly Father. God, I pray in your name, Jesus. God, you would let your will be done today. God, anoint our ears to hear your word. God, I pray that you know my mouth to say what you need me to say. God, speak to us. I pray in Jesus' name, God, let your will be done. God, we give everything over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated if you'd like. I don't think it'll be too long, but who knows? Father's Day. I'm going to spend the first half of this message, or whatever you want to call it, um, speaking to the fathers and the second half to the rest of us, if that's okay with you. Hold on. Fathers sometimes get a, a bad rap. You know, churches um, spend Mother's Day bragging about mom and Father's Day beating up on dad sometimes. <laughs> Talk a lot about fathers that aren't there. And we could do that all day if you wanted. But um, <clears throat> a small boy once said, Father's Day is just like Mother's Day, only you don't spend as much on the gift. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> Mark Twain said that when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to 21, I was astonished at how much he learned in seven years. <laughs> That's how it works sometimes. There are things and sayings that we associate with our dads. Um, if you've heard any of these, shout amen. No. What part of no don't you understand? This is gonna hurt me more than it hurts you. Why? Because I said so. I think I say that every day. I wasn't asleep, I was just resting my eyes. Shut the door, we are raised in a barn. <laughs> a little dirt never hurt anyone. As long as you live under my roof, you'll live by my rules. Anyone ever said that? I'm not made out of money. Don't make me stop this car. It's a good one. Ask your mother. It's probably used daily in our house. Walk it off. That's my favorite. Just walk it off. You'll be fine. It's a long way from your heart whenever you get something injured. Oh. And hi, hungry. I'm dad. Has anyone ever said any of those? Oh, it's okay. You can laugh. Jewish tradition teaches that fatherhood was not necessarily something that was biological. Um, the one who raised the child was considered the father, considered the true parent. And teachers in those days were like fathers, so much so that um, their honor took precedence, in, especially in those situations where they didn't have, uh, you know, there wasn't a father in the house. Whoever the teacher was, whoever the rabbi was, would take that position in their life. And 
the teacher or the rabbi would provide what a father should provide, which is guidance, values, discipline, direction, and love. In the first century, in the beginning of the church, families were ruled by the father who could do whatever they wanted in their homes. That was how it worked in the Roman Empire. Rome had a law called Patria Pro or Potestas, which meant the father, the father's power. And the men who were Roman citizens were given absolute rights over their families. And by law, the children and the wife were regarded as their personal property. And he could do with them as he wished. And a father who did not, who was displeased with his child could disown them. He could sell them or even kill them if he wished. When a child was born, the baby was placed at the father's feet and the father picked up the baby. If he did, the, the baby stayed. If he didn't, then they gave it up for adoption or they sold it or whatever they did. And so that was what the world was like at the time when, when Jesus walked on the earth. That's what the world was like at the time the New Testament was written. Um, there was a guy who was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, and he described it, this policy, as sort of the way we treat animals. You know, we slaughter uh, an ox that was uncontrollable. We strangle a mad dog. We, we kill a sick cow. And children that are born weak or deformed, they, they got rid of. And, you know, but the Bible, <laughs> that's a little heavy, but the Bible teaches the complete opposite. So when the Bible was written, this is how things were. And then the Bible teaches us the complete opposite. And it calls Christian fathers to be different than this. This is how the world was. This is how the world treated their children. And the Bible teaches us differently. Our kids aren't our property to own, but they are image bearers of God who need to be trained. And that's our job as fathers to train and to teach our children, to show our children, not just life things, you know, teach them, show them how to drive a car or mow the lawn or build something or break things, whatever it is that you, you know, you, you do. It's not just those things, but how to treat people with, with love and treat people with respect, how to, how to go about life. And it's our job as fathers to teach our children how to give, how to worship, how to pray, how to live for God, how to make right decisions. How to ask forgiveness when we're wrong. How to forgive people when we've been wrong. How to have faith. And as dads, we're called to provide a proper environment for our children to grow and love and serve God. That's what the Bible calls us to. And that was complete opposite of how things were in those days. And it's still like that today. The New Testament challenges us to see the word father as not just a noun, not just something we are, but something we do as a verb. It's easy biologically to become a father, but it's biblically challenging to actually father our children. The Bible teaches them <clears throat> and challenges us to be the spiritual leader in our homes. Because ultimately it's our responsibility what happens in our homes. It's not enough just for us to be there, just to be a father. But we need to do it as well. There's a saying, anyone can be a father. It takes someone special to be a dad. Fathering is it's a verb. It's a hands-on experience. It's not just 
you know, sitting in your chair, frowning at the kids, hoping to, <laughs> whatever. It's a hands-on experience. We need, as fathers, to show our kids, to lead them, and, and be there for them. In a world where fathers are undervalued, undermined, and underappreciated, you know, that's how it is right now. Somebody does one little thing, oh, wow, he's such a good father. He read him his bedtime story. Mm-hmm. Whatever, that's your job. Do it. You know, that's, we, somebody does one little thing, we're like, oh, my goodness. And we just, you know, we undermine fatherhood a lot. We think we, we, they don't matter. They're just there. As fathers, we need to step up for our children. We need to take that step. We need to go further. The Bible challenges us to go further than what everybody else is doing. If we don't lead our kids, if we don't lead our families, somebody else will. It's our responsibility as fathers to lead our family, to show them how to love, to show them how to worship, to show them how to pray, to show them how to go to church, to show them how to live for God, to show them what priorities should be. That's our job, is our responsibility. And part of that responsibility is striking that balance between love and, and discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 and 7 says, If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? That's a hard verse. No. If the father doesn't correct you, what kind of father is he? What kind of son? What kind of relationship is that? It's part of our job. It's what God does to us too. Corrects us when we're wrong. Puts us on the straight and narrow. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 11 says, As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. That's part of our job. To exhort, to, to teach, to challenge our children, to help them be who God has called them to be. Ephesians 6 and 4 says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know, it's fun sometimes to poke. It's fun. Maybe that's a little wrong to say, but, you know. But we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to, you know, get our children all fired up and angry. You know, we're supposed to lead them in love and, and kindness. Colossians 3 and 21 says, oh, that's what we just read, sorry. <laughs> when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he compared his role as an apostle to the role filled by a father. No one can take the unique place of a dad. 1 Corinthians 4 and 15 says, For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet ye have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And another Version it says there are a lot of people around you who can't wait to tell you what you've done wrong, but there aren't many fathers willing to take the time and effort to help you grow up. He compared his role as a pastor, as an apostle, to that of a father. There's a lot of people that are ready and willing to tell us what we did wrong, but there's few many few people that are willing to help us, to teach us. And that's what a father's job is. It's easy to say, hey, you did that wrong, but it's hard to show them how to do it. The right way. And one of the biggest threats to the generation that we're now raising is the breakdown of family. And fatherhood is an important role. It's an important position. And a lot of people take it for granted. Lifelong marriages provide the foundation for social order and everything we value rests on that. 
Historically, when a family begins to unravel in any culture, something is affected. Everything else is infected, affected. And it's happening today. In Canada, in 2016, one in every five children that were one year old and younger were living in a single parent family. And as they grow, they get to age 10, that number, you know, it's one to one in three. It's a big responsibility. Across North America, 85% of children with behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 70% of teen pregnancies are from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists come from fatherless homes. 75% of teen patients in drug abuse centers are from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in correctional institutions are from fatherless homes. 85% of youths in prison are from fatherless homes, and 63% of youth suicides come from fatherless homes. I know it's a weighty thing, but it's a, it's a big responsibility we have. It's not something to take for granted. It's not something to take lightly. It's something that we need to do and step up as fathers. 30 years ago, we believed that poverty and discrimination were the main responsibility for crime and behavioral problems, but now all the evidence points to a family breakup as a real culprit. 72% of North Americans say that physical absence of fathers is the most serious problem facing our families. And fathers matter. No matter what anybody else says, people try to talk down to fathers and say you don't matter. People try to say that it doesn't affect anything, but what you do matters. No matter what anybody else says, how, many, how much people try to say that fathers don't matter, they do. No matter how much people try to say that you're not important, you matter. I grew up without a father. I grew up with two women, my mother and my aunt, and I made it out okay-ish. <laughs> but a lot of us don't. I had youth pastors. I had a pastor that cared about me. I had Sunday school teachers. I had other guys try to step up and, and fill that role as a teacher. You know, that's how I made it. So, you know, there's kids that don't have fathers, and it's our job as men to stand up for them and help and guide and lead, and that's our job as men in the church to do that. It's our job as fathers to do that, to show and to lead our families, to lead people to Christ. <clears throat> so how do we stop this? By committing our life totally to Jesus and raising our family to do the same. A lot of families, the mother is the one leading. A lot of families, that's how it happens. Father stays home, the father does whatever. <laughs> but as Christians, we need to step up and be the man that God has called us to be. And lead our family as God called us to. Christian fathers don't lie, steal, lust, or covet. Christian fathers don't serve the God of money. Christian fathers don't abandon their children. They respect their wives. They don't send their kids to church. They take them to church. They have a real relationship with God. The greatest need in the hour is united homes where Jesus is the center, where Jesus is exalted. So we need to be an example. We need to go to church. We need to worship. We need to pray. We need to be the first ones at the altar. We need to be the first ones here for prayer meeting. We need to be the first ones here when there's something going on. If you don't have to work, you know, be here. Give, volunteer, sacrifice. Lead the way. Show your family what is important. Hallelujah. 
And many of us were raised in homes where this wasn't the case. I know. And there's people here, that, you know, your fathers are home right now, and I know I'm not trying to beat down on anybody. But many of us are raised in homes where this wasn't the case. And like me, you have maybe you have no real idea what you're doing. You're just winging it. I don't know. I'm just freestyling. Didn't have an example, maybe, of what a father should be like. But thankfully, the Bible gives us an example of a father. God himself. Amen. We're going to read through the Bible's most famous dad story. In Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 says, And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk of the swine, the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. When he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead. And as alive again, he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So I'm going to preach to everyone else. Give the followers a break for a minute. And this son, there was uh, two sons. And the youngest son said, hey, dad, I want my money now. I don't want to wait till you're dead. Give me, give me my money. <laughs> and he takes it and he... He blows all of this money, his inheritance on riotous living. The Bible says he blows it on all this frivolous stuff and he makes a mess out of everything like we sometimes do with what God gives us. And the son leaves and he moves out of his father's house and he left his father's influence and everything fell apart at that moment. Not unlike all the statistics that we read. And the, re the results of living away from our Heavenly Father's influence are always disastrous. They're always bad. They always end up terrible and everything ends up in a mess. And when we start to think that we can do better, when we start to think that we can do better without Jesus, we're better off without Him, we're better off without the church, things never end well. And the further away we run, the worse the destruction gets. As exciting as the world appears, the Father's house is the only place where real love lives. As exciting as the world appears, the Father's house is the only place where real love is experienced. The world looks good for a moment. We can look and we can search for eternity, but we won't find 
another love like the love of Jesus. We can look all across the world. We can search for the rest of our lives. We'll never find someone who loves us as much as Jesus does. We'll never find anyone who will forgive us and show us forgiveness as much as Jesus does. We'll never find anyone that will give us grace and mercy as much as Jesus does. This world is an illusion and the Father's house is reality. The world looks good, it sounds good, it tastes good for a minute, but then it turns sour and then it falls apart. Adam and Eve, the fruit looked good, the fruit was pleasing to the eye, the Bible says, but once they ate of it, everything fell apart. Their disobedience opened up this whole world of sin, and some people are surprised when God acts like this father in the story, when he does nothing to stop the son from taking advantage of him. The father didn't try to stop him. The son said, give it to me. The father said, here you go. He asked and he let him go. He didn't argue. He didn't say, but, but, you know, I, this, you know, the house is good. You know, your mother's here. I'm here. We love you. Don't go, son. Don't, don't do this. He didn't try to talk him out of it. He just let him go. And God isn't going to force you to love him. Amen. God isn't going to force you to live for him. It's up to you. I can't force my kids to love me. I can love them. I can do everything that I can for them. But they need to make that decision. And as so far they do. But one day they may change their mind. One day something may happen. And, but that's up to them. I can't change their heart. I can't change their mind. I can't stop that. <clears throat> the father doesn't even try to keep him. From leaving home and engaging in behaviors that he knows will be destructive to his life. The father knows that this is going to end bad, but he lets him go anyway. When he asks for his money, for his inheritance before the father's death, this is a huge insult to that culture. The father just gives it to him anyway. And God is like that. And sometimes we think, you know... It's disturbing that God refuses to step in and stop people from doing what is wrong. But God has a non-interference policy. When people say, you know, why doesn't God stop all the evil in the world? Why doesn't God stop this from happening? Why doesn't God stop people from hurting other people? Why doesn't God, you know, stop all these evil things, these wars and all these things that are happening? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? Why did this, you know, why, why, why? I mean, we, we ask these questions, but God has given us this gift of free will. And if he interfered, it would no longer be free will. And you're like, yeah, well, he should stop that from happening or this from happening. And we want it to happen. We think we would like God to be more controlling. We think that. That is until, you know, when, it, when it's with other people. You know, I would like God to stop this person from doing that. I would like it if God stopped that person from saying that or doing that. We think we like him to be more controlling when it comes to other people. We would like him to have, to force them to do the right things or stop them from doing the wrong things. But when we want to rebel, we don't want anyone else controlling us. <laughs> when we want to do it, we just, <laughs> no. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. It's, it's a great idea when God's you know, making everybody else do the right thing. <laughs> but I want to do what I want to do. <clears throat> God knows that the moment he forces us to do his will, it's no longer obedience. 
and that it means nothing. And we need to make that decision. <clears throat> In the, the culture of Jesus' day, children didn't even leave home when they became adults and got married. The father just built on to the house, built a new house, a new room for, for the, the family. In my father's house, there were many mansions. We just kept building on. We kept building on. Jesus was building on for us. That's how it worked. The father just simply added to the house, especially if he had, if he had money. And to leave home was to leave everything, to leave your family, to leave your relationships, to leave your, your work and your future. Everything was just it was gone when you left. But the father didn't want his son to stay home if the son didn't want to be there. He didn't want to stay. He didn't want him to stay there out of some sort of obligation. And we notice that the father doesn't go to the distant country to search for his son. He doesn't go to find him. He doesn't rescue him against his will. He doesn't go pull him out of that pit and say, "What were you thinking?" Drag him home. He doesn't go to rescue him against his will. He will let him go until he's discovered for himself that the world is a lie. The son's pursuit of pleasure will make pain his friend, his constant companion. And we can we look at the story, we can see that the boy is foolish. We can see that he's gonna do something foolish. We can see that. We can see that the results of this decision that he's making are gonna be destructive. It's gonna it's gonna end up in a mess. But when you're in the middle of a situation, it's not easy to see it. It's easy to look at other people's people's. Easier to look at other people and say, "Man, are you dumb? What do you think you're doing? That's going to end bad." But it's hard for us to look in the mirror and say, "Well, this is a maybe I shouldn't do that." It's hard to look at ourselves when we're doing something just as foolish. That's why Jesus said, you know, some of us are looking at people with a, um, a speck in their eye and saying, hey, you got that in your eye, and we got a beam sticking in our head. <laughs> it's easy to look at other things and hard to look at ourselves. It's easy to look at that son and say, wow, you know, you did some pretty dumb things, but it's, it's hard when we're doing those things to notice. You're smarter than they are. <laughs> And those things will never happen to you until they do. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall reap of the, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth of the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So if we do good things, if we live for God, you know, we're going to reap good things. If we start making foolish decisions, we're going to reap foolish results. A wise person accepts God's truth and lives their life accordingly. But the foolish person insists on testing God's truth until they will believe it. Learning the hard way. And that's what this young son did. He learned the hard way. And the rebellious son was living off his father's money the whole time. He said, I don't need my father, but he took his father's money. If it wasn't for his father, he wouldn't be able to do what he was doing. He would have had to work a lifetime to get that much money. He was wasting his inheritance and throwing it away. The thing that God gave him that was supposed to give him a future. With the prostitutes and the parties and all this stuff. It was all paid out of his father's 
pocket. He used the blessings and resources that his father had given him to rebel against his father. So the question this morning is, what are you doing with the blessings God has given you? Are you giving them back to him or are you doing whatever you want with it? The worst part of this young man's life was that he went away to the far country. The worst part was not that he went away and wasted his inheritance. The worst part was that he never developed the relationship with his father. If he had developed that relationship, he never would have left home. He never, he never understood how much his father loved him. He never figured out what was available to him at home. It was more than what was in the world. He would not believe that his father wanted the best for him and had great plans for him. He had lived with him all those years and he never knew him. He missed out. And how long have we been coming to church and we don't really know Jesus? We never really realized and never figured out how much He actually loves us. We never realized what was available inside a relationship with God and how much more the church has to offer, how much more Jesus has to offer than all the pleasures and all the money and all the stuff of the world. We don't realize that Jesus wants what's best for us. We don't realize what he's got our best interests at heart. And we look at him and we say, well, the Bible is full of rules. It's full of stuff I can and cannot do. And I don't like rules. I like doing what I want to do. But he put those rules, he put those he put those verses in there for your protection because he loves you. And we look at it and we say, I don't want any of that. I want to do what I want to do. But if we don't, we need to realize how much he loves us. Amen. We come to church for years and we don't get it. We come to church week after week, year after year. And we haven't quite got a hold of how much Jesus loves us. And I grew up with people. I went to church with people. The same Sunday school teachers, the same class, the same youth group, the same youth conventions, the same services, the same prayer meetings, the same altar calls, the same out outreaches, the same outings, the same friends, and they walked away like the sun because they never got to know the Father. They, all they saw was rules. All they saw was this and that and the other thing. They didn't see the love of the Father. We can do the same thing. We can look at that son and say, wow, he was dumb. Wow, he did some stupid things. And we can live the same way. There's another character in this story, the third son. We'll talk about him tonight. But the, the parable is really about the dad. We call it the prodigal son, but it's really about the father. If you've made horrible mistakes, if you've made... If you've taken foolish risks, if you wasted your life, God still loves you Amen. in spite of that. The father still loved the son in spite of that. And the father still welcomed the son home in spite of that. And God still welcomes us home in spite of what we've done. He's waiting for us. Verse 17 and 18 says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. The son had to make that decision on his own. The father didn't force him. The son had to realize that he was lost, and he realized that he realized that he wasn't where he needed to be. He realized he came to himself and realized that in his father's house, the servants were being treated better than he was in the world. 
And he repents. He says, I have sinned. And then verse 20, it says, And he arose and came to his father. He made that decision. He arose. He went to his father. Nobody forced him. He came to himself. He came to his senses. He repented. And he took that first step. And we need to take that first step. We need to repent. We need to start that journey. We need to walk. If you if you wandered, if you made some foolish decisions, if you found yourself in a mess away from the love of the Father, you can come back this morning. You just need to repent. You just need to take that first step. Come to yourself. Start that journey. Walk and get up and come to Jesus. Come to the Father. The rest of verse 20 says, But when he was yet a great way off, the father saw him and had yeah. compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Well, he was a great way off. He wasn't even close to where he needed to be. But all he just started coming back. He had just taken that step. He was a great way off. He wasn't close to where he needed to be. But the father was waiting and the father was watching and the father was ready. And that's what Jesus is like. That's what Amen. a heavenly Amen. father is like. He's watching, he's waiting, and he's ready. All you need to do is take that step and he's ready to take you back. All you need to do is take that step and he's ready to cover you with his love and fall on you again. All it took was that one, this one decision, that one step, that him coming to himself. And the father saw him coming. He didn't wait for him to come all the way. He ran and he met him. He didn't walk. He didn't take a stroll. He didn't go, okay, my son's coming. Let's go. Let's go, everyone. He didn't have a, he just ran. He just gave, he just went as fast as he could to get to him. He didn't wait until he got closer. And Jesus, our Heavenly Father, is waiting for you this morning to come to Him. And you may be a great way off. You may not even be close to where you need to be. But all you need to do is take that step and He will meet you where you're at. And He's watching like a father for you to make that step. For you to repent and come to Him. And He wants you to be part of His family. Take on his name and baptism and take on his spirit. Maybe you're like the prodigal son. Maybe you were part of the family. Maybe you left. Or maybe you need to be adopted for the first time. It doesn't matter. He's waiting on you. Our Father is waiting for you to come to him. And that's the example Jesus gave us of a father. The love regardless of what we do. Of what they say. What decisions are made. To love. To forgive. To take back. To rejoice when they come home. Psalm 68 and 5 says, A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. And that was a verse that I came across when I was struggling with my father not being there. I know everyone told me, you know, God wants to be your father. And I came across this verse. It actually says it. God is the father of the fatherless. If you look in the Hebrew, the word fatherless can also be translated as lonely or desolate. God is a father to the lonely. The people that are lost. The people that are alone. The people that feel like they don't fit in. They feel like nobody else cares. They feel like they're on their own. He is that Father. 
the one that will love you, the one that will protect you, the one that will provide for you, the one that will comfort you and give you shelter and give you a home, the one that's waiting for you to take that step. He is that Father. Let's all stand, please. Hallelujah. Jesus' name. Glory. Hallelujah. 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 Jesus' name. We're going to open the altar. If you want to come. Have you been gone for a while? You want to come to the Father? Hallelujah. He's waiting with his arms open. Hallelujah. Let's come and pray. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Father, thank you, Jesus. Adios.